in a baby dedication. The Bible says that children are an heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is a reward. And we're thankful for the children that God gives to us. And we celebrate the miracle of life. It really is a miracle. And we see the power of God at work. Now, one of the things we need to clarify about a baby dedication is this. It's a little misleading. It really is the parents dedicating themselves to raise their child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we are witnesses to that, and we are a part of that as a congregation. We are here to help them. We are here to pray for them and lend any assistance that we can in raising children. Many of us have raised children, and we've been through the good, the bad, the, the easy, and the difficult. So we can give some light uh, concerning raising children. I want to share with you what God spoke to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. And get this, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So that's what God told Israel. So I'm going to ask the families that are dedicating their children to come forward now. One thing that I will say as they're coming forward is this in no way will save the child. It is just the parents dedicating themselves to raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So we have Rick and Mackenzie and Ezra. And Rick is going to read a portion of Scripture. This is uh, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we have Steve and Ashley. And Our verse is uh, 1 Samuel 1.27 which says, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. And indeed, Eliana's name means my God has answered. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand before you as the God of heaven and earth. You are the God that gives life. And we thank you for the life that you have given to these two children. We thank you for the parents. We thank you for their work of grace that you've done in their lives. And, Father, we know that in the world in which we live, raising children is a very hard task. So we pray that your grace would be sufficient for them. We pray that you would help them and guide them as they seek to raise children that would follow you. We pray that you would give them patience. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray, dear Lord, that you would give them wisdom, wisdom to know what to do and when to do it. And, Lord, we pray for us as a congregation that as we stand before them as witnesses, 
that you would help us, Lord, to encourage them, hold them accountable, and give them any assistance that we can from a practical standpoint. And, Father, we pray for the two children. We pray that your grace would shine in their lives, that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would capture them, and that they, Lord, would be those that would put their flag in the ground saying that I want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. We bless you for this gift and pray that you would bless both families as they seek to raise their children. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And Pastor Steve's coming to preach to us. All right. What a pleasure having uh baby and infant dedication, a parent dedication. We're dedicated all of them, huh? They're the Lord's, and uh, may he give those parents help in raising them up in the Lord. It's time to read some scripture together. You're all seated, so just remain seated for the scripture reading, please, and this is going to lead us into the sermon. This is taken from Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus and the third chapter. Please follow as you see it on the screen. He writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me read part of the end of that last part there. To him be glory in the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us to this time and place that we may open your word. Speak. Into our souls we pray. May your word find its mark and accomplish every purpose for which you now send it. Would you draw some to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved today? Would you strengthen your people, build them up in the faith? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're starting a new series today. I'm just telling you, I don't know how long it's going to run. This one probably go longer than three weeks like the kids that we just did, but I don't really know how long. But the title of it is Kids. I'm sorry. The title of it is Church. We just finished Kids. This one's Church. So you thought I was trying to sneak another kids message in there, didn't you? This one is called Church. I like the slide. Taylor, Jason's wife, Taylor Wallace, is the person who develops most of our sermon slides, and I really, really love this one. It kind of looks like the church has fallen off a cliff. It's about to. And uh, that wasn't intended, but once I looked at it, I thought that really fits with something in the sermon today. So I wanted to point that out to you that it looks like that a little bit. But we're really talking about the church, 
Now, why would I preach about church, you might wonder. For what reason? Why do we have to hear? No, you wouldn't do that. Why do we have to hear, why do we have to hear the church? I mean, Pastor Steve, of all the topics you could select to occupy our time and attention on Sunday mornings for a little while, why does it have to be church? I'll give you some reasons. Here's reason number one. Why preach about church? Answer, because Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's how much he loved it. That's the proof of his love. That's the manifestation of his love. That's the power of his love. He loved the church. This thing we're doing right now, he loves it. Do you love it? We want you to love it because we want to love what Jesus loves. Christ loved the church, and his people ought to be like him and love the church. Do you love the church? Yeah, I know you do, and we should. One of the important things that happens to us, in fact, when we become a believer, is God gives us what the Bible calls a new heart, meaning one of the most important changes that occurs in a believer is our loves change. We get new loves. And he says, I'll write my word in my heart. And he puts his spirit in us. And he takes out the hard heart and gives us a soft, fleshy heart, it's called. The word goes in easily. And one of the most important things that happens to you when you come to Jesus Christ is what you love changes. And one of the things that you love when you come to Christ is what he loves, his church. And I know Jesus loves lots of other things. Like the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm imagining he loves babies. We just saw some babies up here. I'm imagining Jesus loves babies. The Bible doesn't say this, but I think he probably loves the sunset, just like you and I love the sunset. He created it for God's glory, for his glory, and he loves it. But the Bible doesn't say Jesus loves sunsets, nor does the Bible say Jesus loved babies. But the Bible says very plainly, Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and we want to be like Jesus We want to be Christians who love what he loves. We want to love the church. So some of the reason I'm preaching on this is to help you, hopefully, to love the church of Jesus Christ, to love it, to love it. Second reason, why preach about church? One, because Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Reason number two, because we want God to be glorified in his church. We want God to be glorified in his church, so we're preaching about it. What verse do we get that from? I'll go back to one of the opening verses, Ephesians 3.21, where we read, To him, that is to God the Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We want God to be glorified in the church, just like that verse says, to him be glory in the church. So the church doesn't exist for you, ultimately, though it exists to, to you uh, as a subpoint, the church doesn't exist for me, ultimately. It exists to me as a sub. But the church exists for God. It is of him and through him and to him, and it's here to bring glory to God. So we want to be a church that brings glory to God. And, and because it says, to him be glory in the church, we can imagine there must be a, like a sliding scale, There must be a range where one church, because it's a mess, might not be real glorifying to God, and another church, because it's biblically ordered and the people have hearts for Christ and all that, might be very glorifying to God, and there might be churches all along that spectrum, that scale somewhere. We want to be that church 
by the grace of God, we want to be a church where God is really glorified. We want to be able to say and sing and mean it, to him be glory in Cornerstone Church. Do you have that in your soul? That's why I'm preaching this, that you might have that in your soul and that it might get stronger you might be able to say, I love what Jesus loves. I love his church, and I want God to be glorified in his church. So I want us to be a vibrant, healthy New Testament church. So let's review why preach about the church. One, because Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Two, because we want God to be glorified in his church. And now three, because we want to be a biblical church. Amen? We want to be a biblical church, shaped by the Bible, formed by the Bible, conforming to what the Bible tells us about church. And there's a ton in the New Testament about church, about how to do church, what a church ought to be like, what your relationship to church ought to be, what your responsibilities in your church ought to be. There's tons of stuff about that in the Bible. And here's a verse about that. Here's a verse about how important it is that we're a biblical church. 1 Timothy 3, two verses, 14 and 15. Paul writes to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, working on the church down there. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or ground of the truth. There's a lot of verbiage there about the church. It is the household of God, like God lives in this. He dwells in this. And it's, it's, it's the church of the living God, and it's a pillar, and it's a buttress, a bulwark, a stronghold of truth. God deposits his truth on the earth in his church. His church is to hold his truth out to the world. He's entrusted it to us. We're stewards of that truth. But notice, Paul says, I want you, Timothy, I want all the people in Ephesus there to know how one ought to behave in church. Now, that doesn't mean like you're a kid and you're misbehaving in church. Not that kind of behavior. It means how you live, how you conduct yourselves. What are your responsibilities to your church? What are the things you bring to the church? What can the church expect of you? And on and on and on. And the New Testament has many, many things about how we ought behave. The word ought is a, wor a word of like um, moral obligation. And Paul says, I'm writing this in order to accomplish a purpose. It's so the people in the church in Ephesus and the people everywhere who read this letter will know how they ought to walk as brothers and sisters in Christ in a local church. Staying on this point a little bit, we're doing this because we want to be a biblical church. Remember the Lord Jesus in the Great Commission says, here's what I want you all doing and doing it right down to the end because, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So this is what I want you to do. Make disciples. That's leading people savingly to Jesus Christ. And once you've made a disciple, now they're a believer. Here's what I want you to do. Baptize them because they've got to learn to submit to my commands. There's the first one. And then I want you, the church is then responsible to teach them to do all that Christ has commanded. So part of our job as a church Part of my job as one of your pastors is to make sure you know, to make sure you understand, to make sure we're teaching you to do everything Jesus commands us to do as church people. 
This is part of my responsibility. It's part of what we want in our church. And if God's going to be glorified, then we have to know how to behave. Just like parents. You know, if the parents want to be, quote, glorified, the kids got to behave, right? Like if the kids misbehave and misbehave and misbehave, it doesn't represent the parents well. And if we have Christians who are, aren't behaving, aren't behaving, aren't behaving, like churchmen are supposed to, like churchwomen are supposed to, it doesn't represent our Savior well. It doesn't glorify God. So why preach about church? Let me review. One, because Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and we want to be like him. Two, because we want God to be glorified in his church. Three, because we want to be a biblical church. Now get ready for a ridiculous sentence for number four, okay? This is a run-on sentence. Here it is. Here's number four. Follow it with me. Because reliable data tells us that pre-COVID church attendance slash participation has trended downward for 20 years. Pause there. Take a breath. And it has. Very reliable data tells us pre-COVID church attendance, church participation. I don't even like the word attendance. It sounds like you're going to a football game. You attend and go home. No, you participate in the life of a church. Participation has been going down, 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 down in these United States for 20 years. That's a long time. And reliable data tells us that when COVID hit, it, church participation, fell off a cliff Clean off a cliff. I like that word, clean. I inserted that later in the week. And is still lying, broken, weakened, and limp near the bottom. Now, it's hard to get reliable data because there are gurus who are trustworthy but who differ a little bit. But here's the best I can come up with. It's close enough. Uh, they are telling us that the larger the church is, the more it's hurting right now. The, the more people it lost, the smaller it is compared to what it was pre-COVID. So, for example, if you had a very large church pre-COVID, right now you probably have about 25% of the attendance you had pre-COVID. A lot of churches, let's say mid-sized churches, are fortunate if they have 50% of their pre-COVID attendance. By the way, we are very blessed. We have more than our pre-COVID attendance. Bless you all for coming to Cornerstone Church. We love you. A lot of you are new folks since COVID, and we love that you're here. Bless God. Bless the Lord for you. But it's not that way everywhere, and in a lot of places, it's going down and down and down. But we want God to be glorified in the church, and we love the church. So it really troubles us. It wounds us deeply when we see there's a 20-year decline going on in our nation. We're like, what can we do about that? Well, one thing we can do about it is preach about church. So I'm going to preach about church. I'm going, to be, I'm going to preach about church for a while. I'm going to be like the pastor who preached about don't steal chickens. And then the second Sunday, he preached about don't steal chickens. And then the third Sunday, he preached about don't steal chickens. And one of the deacons said to him, you, you keep preaching that. Preach, when are you going to stop preaching that? And he said, when you stop stealing chickens. So I'm going to preach about the church, the church, the church, the church. And you're going to say, when are you going to stop preaching church? When we're all doing what we ought to do in the church of Jesus Christ. So it might be a little while. Pastors need to do that in our day. By the way, I mentioned that there's this decline in point number four. Uh, what are the causes for the decline? It's really amazing. You'd expect some profound, some philosophical, some theological, some big, you know, meta-narrative kind of thing would explain it. Here's what the gurus tell us. It's as simple as this. Number one on their list is the dramatic increase of travel sports. Travel sports. Next on the list is wealth, much greater wealth. We have much more than they did years ago. And because of greater wealth, 
more opportunities. It's like, what do you want to do this weekend, honey? Well, we're out of money. Let's go to church. Otherwise, if there's money, let's do this, let's do that, let's do that. And church is like a bone you toss to God when there's no, no, no meat left, when there's no other options. It's become that way. Uh, the gurus also say weekends away are much greater, much more often than they used to be. They also say we've experienced as a nation the death of cultural Christianity. Like there was a time when pretty much everybody went to church. There was even a time in American history when by law you had to go and you would be fined if you didn't. I'd like that. No, not really. Not really. I would not like that. But the death of cultural Christianity, increased mobility, all these together mean that pre-COVID, attendance for most churches was flat or declining, and churches that were growing pre-COVID, they found that growing was, well, work. That's what the gurus say. Then came COVID, and it all went kaputski. And COVID accelerated the downward trend. We can almost be thankful. COVID took us rapidly to where we were trending anyway. We got rid of the trend and now we're there. Now we know who's really in and who's not. Now we know who really cares and who doesn't. And one other guru, his name is Tom Rayner. He's part of LifeWay Research. They're reputable people. He says he thinks the net effect is good because there has been a pruning. There has been a pruning. Another one says, in the same way that Americans got used to and liked working from home, shopping from home, food delivered to home, and COVID greatly accelerated those trends, so Christians develop new habits. I can do church from home. Only you can't. Now, if you're home and because you're terrified of COVID or there's some other physical or real reason or whatever, bless you. Bless you. You get a pass from this pastor anyhow. But if you're just home because it's easier to be home, you don't get a pass from this pastor. I love you, but you don't get a pass. Because there is a dramatic difference between watching a service on a screen at home and gathering with the people of God, the saints of your church that you have covenanted to walk together with, to fellowship together with, to live out all the 55, I think it is, one another's of the New Testament. There's a dramatic change. And the effect in your life or the non-effect in your life the difference is dramatic. So why am I preaching on this? Because reliable data tells us pre-COVID church took us to a bad place and we're largely still there as a church in the United States and we care. All right, that was the porch. That was the introduction. Remember, it's a series. So that's the introduction to the series. I won't even have an introduction next week or the week. We'll just jump right in, all right? Won't have much introduction, but we needed a porch today. Now we're ready to start into the actual series. We're done the intro. Here's the first thing I want to impress upon you in the body of this message. It is this. The word church, let me just pause there and tell you, the Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word is ekklesia, ekklesia. So the study of the church, which is what we're about to do now, is called ecclesiology. It is the study of the ecclesia. We're going to do the study of the church. We're going to do some like systematic theology of what the Bible teaches us about church. And here's where we're starting with the word church. The word church, used 115 times in the New Testament, you need to know this. Hang in with me. You'll find out why you need to know this is used, that word is used in two very distinct and different ways. So here you are, you're reading through your Bible and you come across the word church. Sometimes that word church means that thing, 
And another time you're reading through your Bible and you come to the word church, and that time the word church means that thing. So the word church, the ecclesia, is used in two very different ways in the New Testament. And if you do not understand this, you're going to make some bad choices. You're not going to treat the church right. You're not going to behave as you ought to. You'll arrive at some false conclusions. So I want to explain to you, probably most of you don't even need explaining. Just humor me. Act like you're really learning something, all right? I want to explain to you the difference between church and church. So here's the first way we'll consider that church, ecclesia, is used in the New Testament. It is used of what theologians have long called, is used as a universal church, or it could be called the invisible church, or it is called the Catholic, little c, not Roman Catholic. Catholic meaning all-embracing church. It is used 11 times that way. 115 times church, 11 of them are of the universal, invisible, or Catholic church. Let me give you some examples, just two, I think. Here's what they are. Number one, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. What, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about building this church? Or is he talking about building Trinity Lutheran around the corner? Or is he talking about building Christ Fellowship up in Forest Hill? Actually, he's talking about the universal church, the Catholic church, which happens to be an invisible church. You can't see it. You can't go to it. You can't get baptized by it. There aren't any sermons in it. There's only one pastor. That's the Lord Jesus. But Jesus speaks of that church, and he says, that's what I'm building. I'm building my church. It's singular. There's only one of them. There are many churches, local and visible. There's only one church, universal and Catholic and invisible, and Jesus is building it. Here's a second reference on that. Ephesians 5.25. Christ, we already saw this. Here it is again. Christ loved the church. The church. I thought there were many churches. No, in this verse, church has such a definition that there's only one of them. There's only one church in this verse, and he loves it. Well, what's that one church? Well, it's not a local church. There's more than one local church on the planet, amen? This is a universal church. All believers of all time are included in, are members of this church, and only believers are in this church. It's a universal church. Everybody in it believes in the Lord Jesus and is saved, and Christ loved the church. So of the, what did I say, 100 couple references, 11 of them, like these two, refer to the universal church. Let's talk about some characteristics of the universal church or the invisible church. Here's characteristic number one. Well, it's invisible. You can't see it. Like, can you see Cornerstone? Yeah, you can see our building. You can drive past it. Oh, there's Cornerstone. That's where the church meets. It's not the, that's not the church. You know that. But right now, guess who I'm looking at? Guess what I'm looking at? I'm looking at a church. A church, not the church. We should not be like, we are the church. No, no, no. I'm looking at a church, the one that meets on Mountain Road in Joppa, Maryland. But it's invisible. You can't see every member the, the universal church is. Can you see all believers? Are they all meeting somewhere right now? No, the universal church is invisible, and you never see them all at one time until you get in heaven and everybody's in heaven who's going to be in heaven. Then you can see them all at one time. Here's another characteristic of the universal church. It has no gatherings, no officers, no baptisms, no communion, no prayer meetings, no worship services, and no offerings. 
That's the universal church. They never take up an offering. Okay, we're going to take up an offering in the universal church. That means all believers and all, that would be a great offering. But it doesn't do that. Well, I'm going to get baptized in the universal church. No, they can't baptize you. There's no water there. What are they going to do? It's invisible. So it has no gatherings, officers, et cetera, et cetera. And third characteristic is this. I already mentioned it. It's made up of all believers. That's what we mean by universal or Catholic little c. All whom Christ redeemed are part of that church. And only those whom Christ redeemed are part of that church. It's a pure church. It only has believers. So those are some important characteristics of the universal church. Hang in there with me. This is kind of heady. I'm going somewhere with, it, with this, all right? Hang in there with me. We're going to come to some conclusions from this. But first, let me give you a quote, a great quote, from a venerable old document called the London Baptist Confession of 1689. My favorite doctrinal statement on the planet has been for a long time. And in the LBC, paragraph, I'm sorry, chapter 26, paragraph 1, they wrote these words. The Catholic or universal church, which may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Well said, London Baptist confessors. That's a great explanation of. That's a great definition of the universal or the Catholic or the invisible church and some of its characteristics. But, however, there's a second way the New Testament uses the word ecclesia. There's a second thing it's pointing at. There's a second thing that is meant when the word church appears in the New Testament. And it means this, 104 of the times that it appears. And it is a local church. It is a visible church like the one we're participating in right now. Let me give you some examples. I have more on my page than I'm going to give you. So slide, man, we're not doing them all. But let's take number one, Galatians 1-2. Here's the local church. Here's the visible church. Paul writes, Paul and all the brothers who are with me to the church as of Galatia. Now, wait a minute. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. One church. The Bible says Jesus loved the church. One church. Singular. But now we all of a sudden have plural. Paul and all who are with him are writing to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Galatia is a region. Let's say it's like Maryland. And Paul's going to write a letter to every church in Maryland. How many churches are there in Maryland? I have no idea. But he's writing a letter, and it's to go to every single one of them. So you have the church, and you have churches. And they're different things. Let me give you another example, Romans 16, 16, a beautiful verse. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's so sweet. There's COVID in the land. Don't you be kissing me on the lips, all right? <laughs> but greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he adds this, all the churches of Christ greet you. Paul's been in touch with all these churches. And they've all said to him, man, if you ever get to Rome, if you ever talk to Rome, tell them we love them. Tell them we're so thrilled there's a church like them. And so Paul's passing on the greeting of all the churches, plural, the one in Corinth, the one in Philippi, the one in Laodicea, and all these churches, local churches, are all gathering together to greet the local church in Rome. Here's another one, Galatians 1.22. Paul says, when I was, it was early on, I was just saved. I was still unknown in person to the churches 
of Judea that are in Christ. Well, you get the idea. So there's the universal church. There's one of them. All believers are in it. And then there are local churches. They're visible churches, and they have a number of believers in them, and they meet at a specific geographical location. Well, now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to characteristics of a local church. What are some characteristics of a local church? Well, it's local. Like you can drive to it. Used to be you could walk to it, ride your horse to it. Now we generally drive to it. So it's local. It's something you can get to. Some of y'all, like, I'm like, what church are you in? Well, it's in Oklahoma. That doesn't sound very local. Like you need to be in a local church. It's local and it's visible. When I ask you what church are you in, don't say, I'm in the invisible church. That, that, that's a church, but that's not Sorry, that's the church. It's not a church that you need to be in. And furthermore, the local church has officers, members, meetings, gatherings, ordinances, and discipline. So almost every time you read the word church in the New Testament, it's about that. 104 times, it's about a local church, a visible church. 104 times, church, church, church means this. So let's ask this question. All right, Steve, you kept us going long enough. Why does all this matter? What is all this about? Fair question. Here's a sentence that begins to tell you why it matters. If you don't get this right, you will get some very important things about church very wrong. And I periodically, not every day, but I periodically run into believers who are getting things about the local church very wrong because they don't get this distinction between what that says about the church and what this says about the church and how they differ. Let me give you some examples. So I'm going somewhere and I meet a guy and, hey, he's a believer. That's cool. Love meeting believers. What church are you a part of might be my next question. And he says, oh, uh, uh, I, I'm not in any particular church. I'm in the church. I'm a member of the church. Yeah, well, where do you worship? Well, as the church, you know, with my wife and kids, because we're the church. Or sometimes we get together with our neighbors down the street, because that's church, right? So that's church. So anywhere you have a few believers together, that's church. That's what they might say. But that's bogus. That's not the New Testament description of a church that you need to be a part of. Or here's another example of what you might get very wrong. I meet a guy, and he says, I'm a believer, and I say, that's wonderful. And then my next question is, uh, uh, no, then he says to me, and, and I'm also a pastor. Say, oh, you're a pastor. It's so cool to meet a pastor. I'm a pastor. I pastor Cornerstone in Joppa. I'm one of the pastors there. Where do you pastor? And he says, well, I don't currently have a church I'm pastoring. I'm a pastor in the local, in the invisible church. I'm a pastor in the universal church. I'm a pastor in the Catholic church. Bogus. In the New Testament, you're not a pastor unless a local church has said, we appoint you as one of our pastors. If you all kick me out tomorrow, I don't take the pastor title with me. I lost pastor. I'm just Steve, the plumber, or whatever I can find. So, so you, you, there are no pastors. You can't be a pastor in the universal church, but I meet them. Well, I don't have a church now. I'm between churches. Well, then you're not a pastor, brother. Let's keep this straight. Other people object to what I'm saying with Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. And they'll say, see, so when I'm with my wife and my kids, that's church, two or three, and Jesus is there. 
when we meet with our friends down the street, that's church because two or three, and we have more than that by then, and Jesus is there, so it's church. That's not what that says. Read the context. It's about church discipline. It's about a local church exercising discipline over one or more of its members, and Jesus is giving the churches this assurance, no matter how small you are, like it's probably an exaggeration. Even if you only have three people in your local church, I just want you to know I'm there with you. I back what you're doing. It's according to my word. It's what I want you to do. So Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered, does not say that's a local church. Don't get those things confused. Let me give you a statement here. I'll read it. Being a member of the universal church does not satisfy all of God's requirements for you and a local church. Hanging out with friends and family in the universal church doesn't glorify God the way you're supposed to in the local church. Hanging out with friends and family in the universal church doesn't um, behave in the church in the way that God wants us to. So that's why it matters. Don't confuse the universal church and the local church. Here are some implications I want to give you. I've hinted at some of them. Let me make them clear. Number one, all believers and only believers are part of the universal church. There's something that's really cool about the universal church. It's pure and it's large, it's gargantuan. All believers are in it. The believers who are in China right now are in the universal church and you're in the universal church and the people in Alaska and Hawaii are in the universal church. We're all in it together and it's pure. There are no false members in it. There are no nominal Christians only. They say the words, but they don't have it in their soul. There are no unregenerate, but kind of confessing people in there. No, they're all, it's pure. They're all true believers. They're all regenerate. That's the universal church. Every believer and all believers are in it and only believers. Here's an implication number two. Every believer, uh-oh, I'm going to drop the hammer now. Uh-oh. Get ready. Been building for this. Every believer is supposed, there I use that word, supposed. Because Paul said, this is how you ought to, I'm writing so you'll know how you ought. So we can use the obligation word. We can say supposed. Every believer is supposed. This is what the head of the church intends. This is what Jesus wants for you. Every believer is supposed to be vitally connected to the life, the people, and the ministries of a local church. So again, that's why I say, don't just have this mentality like, well, I attend church. That's Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes. That's done. Now the rest of my week is like me and my job and whatever else. No, 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 no. You do life in connection to your brothers and sisters in your local church. Church is nothing if it's not communal. I don't mean like hippie communal. I don't mean weird. I mean you live in community. We are meant to follow Jesus Christ in community. There are those 55 one another's of the New Testament. Where am I supposed to do those? In connection with the brothers and sisters largely in my church. So every believer is supposed to be vitally connected Loving your church, building your church, glorifying God in your church, rightly distinguishing the universal and the local. And you're in the local, vitally connected to it, every believer. Every, how can we say every? Every believer in the New Testament except one was vitally connected to a local church. Do you know who the one is? Who's the one? 
Uh, somebody else said that in the first service, thief at the cross. See, that's not really church yet. Church begins Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the actual New Covenant, New Testament church. So good guess, though. I get it. Who, who was it? Who was in the church era after Pentecost? The Holy Spirit has fallen. The church has begun. And we find one guy who's not part of a church. Who is it? Oh, somebody else said that, too. That was the second guess in the first service. You're all tracking together great. There's unity in this church. You're all wrong together. It's the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. This man who was probably very wealthy, worked for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He came up to Jerusalem to worship with those Hebrew people. And he's been there and he's riding home in his chariot. And he's wealthy enough. He bought himself a copy of the Old Testament. And he's into Isaiah chapter 53, real deep, and trying to figure out of whom does this speak. And Philip comes along and, and he asks him, brother, can you tell me what this is? And Philip preaches Christ to him and the eunuch believes on the Lord Jesus and is saved, and he goes back to Ethiopia. And he presumably becomes the first and only Christian in all of Ethiopia at that point. He got to be the first one to carry the gospel. And if he opened his mouth, if he loved on people and shared Christ with them and used words, like gospel words, then some of them came to Christ and soon he had a church. But for a while there, he didn't have a church. He's the only one. Every other believer in the New Testament is part of the Philippian church or the Ephesian church or the Galatian churches or some church. Every believer is supposed to be vitally connected. Here's the third implication. You can't say, well, maybe I should have softened that. Please don't say. Please don't say, I'm obeying the New Testament commands about being part of a church by being part of the invisible church. There are lots and lots and lots of New Testament commands about what my relationship to my church is supposed to be, and I'm doing all those commands in the universal and in the invisible church. Well, then your obedience to the commands is invisible. Now, please don't say that. So why are we going through this? Because we're going to look at passages that govern our lives, that tell us how we ought to conduct ourselves as a church, that tell us how we're supposed to do this thing, that tell us how to behave together in this church. And I don't want any of us, please, imagining that, oh, I can fulfill all that without being vitally connected to any local church. I'm the church. Me and my wife are the church. Me and my neighbors are the church. No, you need a church. You need a real church. So what have we seen? We've seen why I'm preaching about church. I don't have a slide for this part. Two ways the New Testament uses church and some characteristics of each. We've talked about why it matters a little bit. Now I want to cover one more thing before we close today. So hang in there with me, please. I want to add the church, the church, the church has a founder who is also a foundation. There are founders, plural in fact, of the church. And there are founders of every local church, in a sense. Here's what I mean. Let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus Christ as the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation and the head of the New Testament church. We see that in Ephesians 1.22. Paul says, for no man, nobody, can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So it's like God dug a big hole in the earth and put in some rebar and poured some concrete, stick some blocks in there, and said, okay, the foundation is laid. Nobody else can repeat that. There's only one. I've done it. It's laid. So Jesus Christ is the foundation or the founder, if you will. Why is this important? It's not your church. It's not my church. 
I don't get to design it. I don't get to hoist a moist finger aloft. Let's see, which way would culture like the church to blow right now? Oh, let's go that way. No, no. I go to the pages of the New Testament where Jesus Christ, the founder, says, here's how you behave in my church. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not our church. This is his church. We don't get to design it. We get to obey and follow his design. But not only is he founder, he's also head. Where do we get that? Well, I'll just show you one reference. That's enough. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, the father, put all things under his, the son's feet, and gave him, the son, as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus Christ is the foundation, and Jesus Christ is the head. Now, what does the head get to do? Direct the body. What does the head get to do? Tell the body what to do. Here's how you march. Here's how you live. So he's the foundation, and he's the head, and we're the little bit of building that's in between there, the living stones that he's building with. But in a sense, he's not the only foundation. So are Jesus Christ's apostles. Let's go down to that slide. Jesus Christ's apostles are co-founders. They are co-foundations with Jesus. I'm getting into this because there's this thing. It's insane. It's too much in our Christian world nowadays where people are like, well, I like what Jesus said, but I think Paul's kind of sketchy. No, you're kind of sketchy. Um, no red-letter Bible mentality, please. The Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John and the whole lot of them were all handpicked by Jesus, and he, he, he assured them in the Gospel of John that he's going to bring to their remembrance everything he taught them so they'll get it right, and he'll show them more things to come that he hadn't revealed to them yet. He said, I'm going to reveal my will for my church to you, and you all write it down and give it to my people, and that's exactly what we have in our Bibles. So they are co-founders, in a sense, with Jesus. Where do you get that in the Word? Let's look at Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So Jesus Christ is the foundation, but now we're also told there's apostles and prophets in that foundation, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So what are we saying? Christ is the head, and Christ is the foundation, and as head and foundation, he called some other men in with him and said, you help me co-found this thing. You tell them what I say. You give them my word, and together they form the foundation of the church, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So what's important about all that? Only the apostles of Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ himself get to tell us what's church supposed to be. What's your relationship to a church supposed to be? What's your involvement in a church supposed to be? How do you participate in the life of a church? What that's supposed to be? Jesus has commands for you in that. You don't get to say, oh, let's see, how would I like to live my life? I'll sprinkle a little church. No, you don't get to do that. You have to find out what is the will of God for me and church, and now you love what he loves, so you take it seriously. All right, so it is closing time. Thank you for hanging in there with me. What am I asking you to do? Well, I'm asking you to come again next Sunday. You were supposed to chuckle with that. And, and hear some more about church. And I'm asking you to 
pray that we would be a God-glorifying church, that end of the spectrum, that we would be a biblically behaving church, that end of the spectrum, that we would be a, a church that represents our Savior on the planet well. Pray for that. Have that in your heart. Care. Oh, Lord, I love your church. What should I do? What are my responsibilities? What are my relationships? What are they? That's where we're going. Hope you'll come again next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word, which instructs us in your ways. Thank you that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we pray that people would find that salvation in him even now. May they believe on the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, save me, a sinner. Save me by your grace. And we, your people, want to follow faithfully. We want to be serious disciples, Lord Jesus. So put it in our hearts, in our hearts, in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, here's the number on the screen. At least it should be appearing there soon. We want to help you. We're here for you. We want to minister to you. If there's some way I can serve you or other pastors here can serve you, please text pastor to that number. We'll be in touch, and uh, we would love to hear from you. Thank you. Pastor Jim is leading us in communion today. Please do, brother. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for bringing us God's word. Pray that it would accomplish his desire in each one of our hearts. So we've come to the time in our worship service where we uh, invite believers to come together and share in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we invite all believers who have put saving faith in Jesus Christ to join us in this. If you are a visitor, uh, we welcome you. Uh, if you were, did not pick up the elements for communion, uh, you can do so right outside the door here at the back of the sanctuary. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would welcome the opportunity to speak with you after the service so that you can join us uh, in knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So as we turn our attention to communion, I'm going to be reading from Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So let's consider each one of us who is participating in the Lord's Supper this morning as a personal relationship with Christ. But consider also those gathered here together in this local church, participating together in the Lord's Supper, in addition to all of those believers around the world and throughout history as part of Christ's universal church who have participated in the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. So I'd ask you to to stand and to join us in one last song of worship this morning. This song is called, Is He Worthy? We're singing that now because we love singing to Jesus Christ and he is worthy of all honor and glory. And just a little slice of that is he is worthy for us to obey him. And even if he tells us to come around and be a bunch of saved sinners at church, even if he tells us to, that, it's, that he wants his body to Christ, the body of Christ to be like this or like this, he's worthy of obedience and joyfully so. He's worthy of everything. Let's sing his praise. is broken do you feel the shadows deepen we do but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do do you wish that you could see it all All creation groaning is a new creation coming. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy? Of it? Yeah. And does the Father truly rise? Does the Spirit move among us? And is Jesus our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? And 
Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He dies. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone holy? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom of to reign with the sun Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Oh, 
Praise the Lord.